From Washington, D.C., the swamp itself, this is the week's worst with Alan and filling in for Matthew Vadim, uh, Watson. I'm Dr. Stephen J. Allen, Vice President and Chief Investigative Officer of the Capital Research Center. And I'm Michael Watson, Research Analyst at the Capital Research Center, filling in for Matt Vadim. And I'm Jay Klein, media producer at the Capital Research Center, and I'll be moderating this podcast in which we dig through the news for stories that we think are the most outrageous, the most ridiculous, the worst. Um, so this is going to be an interesting week. Uh, we're very happy to have uh, Mike Watson filling in here for Matthew. And I think this is a great opportunity to show that, uh, you know, the Capital Research Center is actually very much a, a coalition organization between lots of different strands of conservative thought, um, all sort of united in terms of uh, researching and uh, um, arguing against what the other side is doing. And so internally, you guys don't get to see this listening to the podcast all the time, but internally, um, there's a lot of different opinions on, on policy and various issues of the day. And um, I think this is going to be a really uh, interesting opportunity to sort of delve into that sort of stuff. So uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Trump's executive order, which went into effect, um, the so-called travel ban. Um, and I think we're going to have uh, two different opinions here about it. So it'll be interesting to dive into that. So on June 26th, Trump's executive order 13780, titled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States, a.k.a. the travel ban, was reinstated by the Supreme Court, striking down the lower court's decision to halt the order uh, with only minor uh, restrictions from the text as written. The case will be fully heard by the court in October. The executive order bans visitors from Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen for 90 days, and all refugees for 120 days. So, Mike, you're new on the show. First question goes to you. Um, so these countries were not picked randomly. Uh, they're all countries our government has recognized as state sponsors of terror or otherwise terrorist hotspots. Um, is there anything wrong with our country just trying to protect itself from terrorism? Well, there's nothing wrong in trying to protect our country from terrorism. The problem is this, uh, the order that President Trump and the administration are pursuing uh, is not an effective means of doing that. Um, you noted that, you know, yes, many of these, many of these countries are either uh, state sponsors of terrorism or, you know, failed states, uh, but they're not necessarily the states even that have uh, substantial foreign terrorism. Um, the, obviously most of the nine, none of the, uh, most of the 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, which is problematic because Saudi Arabia is a U.S. ally. Um, and then the question of the refugee program, which is fully suspended for the next four months, uh, that is without, without scope, without limitation in its scope. Uh, that closes off, uh, refugees from Ukraine fleeing the Russian conf the, the conflict with Russia that closes off Africans fleeing the sectarian and ethnic conflicts on that continent, not just uh, people from those six nations who may or may not be compromised by terrorist organizations. And it is uh, important to note that in of the refugee program, the program that has been suspended, uh, there is uh, no one has been uh, in the United States has been killed by a by a person who came to the United States under those programs. Now there was the issue of the Sarnayev brothers, uh, the Boston Marathon attackers, 
uh, but they were admitted under a different program, under asylum, not under the refugee program. Well, look, you're trying to prevent future terrorist attacks, and it's very difficult to go back and look and see what's happened before and make projections into the future, uh, particularly things like uh, people's country of origin. You would not have uh, had a a particular concern with Saudis, uh, say, coming into the country or uh, people who had been in Saudi Arabia coming into the country uh, prior to 9-11. Uh, so you know, that that's uh, it's an imp- it's an interesting point. Uh, it cert- certainly should be considered. But to me, the main thing is to establish the pre- power of the president of the United States to control entry into the country, which is in the Constitution uh, and uh, has been and has as has been interpreted over the years, gives the president pretty much um absolute power. There are certain exceptions, uh, but pretty much absolute power to, uh, if you can have absolute power with exceptions. Um, but, uh, you know, if the president wanted to ban everyone who was redheaded or everyone whose name started with O, uh, then the president uh, probably has uh, that authority. I, the courts make up the courts now. They wouldn't uphold that, but, but that's probably what uh, you would have under the Constitution. And the reason is there's a difference between Uh, people who are in the United States, and that's either people who are uh, present in the United States who are residents, including illegal residents, uh, and uh, people who are U.S. citizens. That group of people, they are generally referred to as U.S. persons, all the ones who are in the United States. Uh, And uh, also U.S. citizens abroad are considered U.S. persons. But people who are neither U.S. citizens uh, nor present in the United States, they don't really have rights under the Constitution. Now, obviously, I would not be in favor of uh, taking doing anything that would take away someone's free speech rights necessarily in another country. Uh, I'm sure there are government programs uh, that you could point to where there might have some implication that way. Uh, but uh, in, in general, you have to draw the line somewhere, and you can't have uh, the concern be the, the same level of constitutional protection for people who are either U.S. persons, uh, that is, either citizens or, or in the United States present, um, and uh, and those who are outside. Uh, so part of this is to establish the authority of the president to do that, whoever the president might be, and for whatever purpose any president, the current one or a future one, might uh, might want to exercise this power. And that, I think, is something that's, uh, that I'm, I'm happy with the Supreme Court decision, more or less. There's that weird compromise part about uh, family members, uh, and clearly it was a compromise. There's not any sort of legal principle, I think, behind that. It was just sort of, well, I need to get uh, all—Justice Roberts wanted to get all nine votes for the main uh, ruling, and he got that. Uh, and then this was part of the deal. But in any event, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, the, the, they need a, a breathing period. I mean, the, the president made clear that he was talking about when he was talking about travel bans, he was talking about a breathing period, uh, a period when they could sit down and work out a policy uh, that made sense. And uh, that's what they've got now. Well, Steve and Mike, you can correct me if, uh, if I'm wrong. I think we're actually all on the same page about the legal aspect of this. As we've discussed on the podcast before, the Ninth Circuit Court is the most overturned uh, circuit of court, and so this wasn't a big surprise to any of us that the yeah. decision would get I mean, overturned. I mean, I mean, to the extent, you yeah. know, uh, again, I, I fully believe that what the Ninth Circuit and the other lower courts had decided was an abomination unto constitutional law. Um, but again, uh, my problem with the, with the policy is with the policy, not with the 
uh, question of the president's authority. The president has the authority to do many things that are, in the words of the late Justice Antonin Scalia, stupid but constitutional. Uh, and I happen to believe that this is one of those things. And I would not necessarily say that this is the best way to handle this issue in terms of a, a long-term thing, but it's not a long-term thing. Uh, the, this is to, to put a halt, uh, a temporary uh, halt, uh, to a certain class of uh, immigration uh, and travel into the United States, and that's to allow time to come up with a come up with a workable policy. Nobody was really trying to come up with a workable policy before, and we were headed toward what you have in Europe, where uh, there's really uncontrolled uh, immigration from terrorist hotspots that's leading to terrorist attacks. No, it hasn't happened that way in the United States, but we have a model. Uh, which is uh, the situation in Europe that we're trying to avoid, and uh, the the situation's different from us for us from the Europeans. So the the rules are going to be different, but that's what we're trying to avoid. Well, certainly it's an important part of the text of the bill that this is only a uh, ninety day uh, travel ban and one hundred and twenty in the case of refugees. But um, you know. And that was supposed to be, yes, as you said, a breathing room period to be replaced by new extreme vetting uh, procedures. But it's already been 90 days since the executive order was originally signed. Um, and now it's just coming back into effect because of the Supreme Court decision. So so why do we still need it? I mean, if the whole point was to buy some time to get this thing figured out, why don't we have our extreme vetting yet? I, what are we what is what was the breathing room for? We're already here. Oh, you, you, you have a good point. Uh, the administration is is crippled uh, to some degree by the failure to put people in place to do policy, uh, and and that and that's true of all administrations when they come in. I remember, uh, you know, I was I was on the list to get a job in the Reagan administration, and I finally. Uh, uh, by August of 1981, took a job working for the U.S. Senate uh, because, uh, partly because I, I didn't see the end of that road. I, I was wondering when they were going to get around to doing me. And uh, and there are a lot of people right now in the in the Trump situation, in the Trump administration uh, hiring process, who are you know wondering how long it's going to take for everybody to get in position. Uh, it's worse than previous administrations. There's no question about that. At one point, I was told there were 20 people in the personnel office as opposed to 80 to 110 in previous administrations. And that uh, and that also you had the additional problem, which is not completely their fault. And that is that uh, they felt they found out they couldn't trust uh, the Office of Personnel Management to, to vet people. So anyway, so that's a side issue, but that has to do with things like putting policy together. Remember that one of the problems that we had before 9-11 was that it took so long for the Bush administration to get people in place. There were literally people in national security positions who started their first day on the job at the beginning of September 2001. So they had been in office just a few days, uh, basically find, trying, to, trying to find out where the cafeteria was in their building, uh, and uh, and they weren't uh, able to uh, deal as well as they might have been otherwise able to deal with uh, with what happened on 9-11. So, so anyway, the, the point is this stuff takes time. Uh, it always takes time. It, it's going to take more time in early in an administration when they don't have their people in place and uh, uh, you know that the, the, the 
thing the president always said was that uh, he he wanted to establish these procedures uh, and give uh, you know as you say a breathing room uh, for people to come in uh, before, you know for, to to keep people out long enough to figure out how you should let people in and uh, and I'm confident that they're working on that whether they're going to be able to come up with something I don't know because it's it's hard to imagine you know you've got to how do you how do you deal with Syrian refugees who you don't have uh, paperwork for uh, you know and and and, and there are ways uh, that the uh, intelligence community and others have, have figured out. And certainly you can do things like monitoring uh, social networks, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a major problem. Uh, I mean, there's, there's quite, a bit, uh, quite a bit to that. Um, certainly the administration has had trouble, uh, uh, even to a greater degree than other new administrations, uh, Getting, uh, getting people cleared, getting people into the policymaking positions. Uh, but that, again, bespeak, speaks to one of the problems that this initial order, certainly the initial order back in January had, uh, that they were trying to run ahead with, uh, with this travel ban without important people, with, before the, the Secretary of State had been confirmed, uh, before there was... Uh, I be, I'm not even certain that uh, sec, that uh, Attorney General Sessions had been confirmed at that point, uh, and I believe they still don't have a Solicitor General to argue their case uh, before the before the appeals courts and before the Supreme Court. Um, and, and you're right. There there was the problem, of course, of the Obama holdover at the Justice Department being the person who was initially. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're right. Sally, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sally Yates, uh, who you know, uh, you know, became a liberal cause salab, um, you know, and not having these people in place led to, uh, sloppiness led to, uh, the sort of what, again, I think objectively was a sort of calamitous rollout, um, that caused both political and policy problems for the administration in its second week. Uh, and before it was in a position, uh, even to be able to effectively respond to them. Um, so Mike, uh, go, go, getting back to the policy of all of this, uh, rather than necessarily the execution, um, t- we've seen in the past terrorists have posed as refugees in Europe and executed attacks, or in some cases been prevented from executing attacks, but have attempted to. Um, and we've heard the Skittles analogy used before, uh, during the campaign, where if there was just one poison Skittle in a bowl, you wouldn't want to eat any of them. And this was an analogy intended to refer to the Syrian refugee issue. So why should we let anybody in if it could potentially mean another terrorist attack? Because as you both seem to agree, it is in the purview of the executive branch to be able to put in such restrictive immigration policies. Well, the problem, the principal problem with the Skittles analogy is that the num the 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 risk of a of inj- of a, of death in a foreign terrorist attack uh, is exceptionally low, uh, even if you include uh, the attacks of September 11, 2001. Uh, the risk of death in the United States from a foreign terrorist uh, activity is one in over three million. Uh, we accept a certain level of risk in our lives. We accept. Uh, a certain danger uh, in order for various uh, good things. You know, we accept that 30,000 people, give or take, are going to die on the roads every year. Uh, we accept 
that 10,000 people, give or take, are going to die of firearm homicide every year. Uh, the, the, the risk from admitting refugees, and you know, we have to think again about the good things uh, here. Uh, you know, the, for the refugees themselves, obviously, uh, being able to leave a place that is uh, overrun by war or by persecution uh, is a major benefit to them. And uh, to us, uh, the ability to admit refugees uh, gives us an opportunity uh, to conduct good public diplomacy, uh, to improve uh, our standing in the world, and also uh, to the extent that we can reaccommodate populations that might otherwise be embroiled in conflict and embroiled in, in potential radicalism, we may be able to give them an outlet where they don't radicalize, where instead of having a bunch of idle young men who are being repressed by a government in uh, East Africa, in Burma, uh, instead they come to the United States, they make a life for themselves in a community, and the radicalization that might have happened does not occur. Well. You know, first of all, with regard to the, the, the last thing you mentioned, certainly um, ghettoization is a big problem. And for those who don't know, because I remember my old boss, Newt Gingrich, one time got in trouble for referring to ghettoization and people didn't know what it meant. They thought it was uh, an insult. Uh, it basically means segregation of, of, a, of a particular group of people uh, as they, uh, the, the Jews were segregated in, I believe it was Vienna, where the term ghetto arose and so on. Uh, and, and you have a ghettoization problem uh, in uh, Europe, because uh, so many people from Muslim countries come in, many of them are, are, are young, all, the vast majority are young men. Uh, they come in, uh, they're needed for the economy, because when you have these uh, welfare states, uh, they, uh, they have uh, very um, uh, early ages of retirement with very high level of retirement benefits. Uh, their economies end up being dependent on having lots of young workers uh, imported into the country. Uh, so the country has a hard time uh, in not bringing in people from Morocco or wherever. Uh, in order to, to fill certain jobs. Uh, people then, however, uh, because they're not uh, assimilated in a good way, the melting pot kind of way, where cultures come together and you get the best of all of them, which is what the United States is, is largely founded on that concept. Uh, instead, they end up in, in their own neighborhoods. Um, they end up being exposed to you know radical clerics uh, who are the leaders in the community. You have uh, no-go zones for police uh, that eventually develop in a lot of places. Uh, and then that's where you get a, a lot of the problem that you have in, in Europe. And obviously, we want to avoid having that in the United States. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, that, that the Syrian refugees, uh, at least under the Obama administration, they were very careful in how they placed them uh, for for example, not placing them anywhere in the vicinity of Washington, D.C. So you'd have some in Virginia, but they would be downstate, uh, uh, far from Washington, D.C. Uh, and it was uh, clearly that there was a political placement, uh, sort of putting them in the areas that uh, would cause the least political problems. But of course, a lot of problems for the people that uh, maybe live in that area that aren't used to handling uh, folks coming in who are from uh, from other countries and different cultures. But in, in any event, you... you, you um, there are reasons to admit refugees. Uh, certainly uh, moral standing uh, is important, uh, being a place that people can come from around the world. Uh, 
And you have the added uh, aspect of this situation that a lot of the trouble in the Middle East is the fault of, of the Barack Obama, uh, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry policies uh, that uh, led to uh, the collapse in, in Libya, for example. Uh, a lot of the situation in Syria, I think, can be blamed uh, directly on them. And uh, the um, and so so you know, we have a moral responsibility, I guess, because we voted for those folks back in in uh, 2008 and 2012. We collectively did. Um, but a lot of it, uh, a, a lot of how you handle it uh, is uh, a, lot, a lot of, uh, you, you should have rules, for example, that give benefit to the people who are victims of genocide. And what we saw in the first, I think, first 2,500 Syrian refugees in the country under the Obama administration, and uh, there was, uh, I believe, uh, less than 1% were Christians. Christians are 10% of the population of Syria, or at least they were before the conflict. So they should be a much higher, higher, higher uh, percentage. Uh, there was one Yazidi, not 1%, one Yazidi, and that they're particularly subject to genocide. Uh, and uh, so you need to have policies that protect people who are subject to genocide. That's been policy of us uh, since we failed to do that leading up to World War II, and that's considered one of the great moral failings of our country, that we didn't take more steps to protect the Jews uh, in Europe and others who were subject to uh, to the Holocaust, and uh, and we should be doing that with regard to these uh, these refugees coming in. But so far, uh, it's been I believe less than one half of one percent have been Christians, and the number of Yazidis has been very small. Uh, and uh, and we need to concentrate on folks like that if we're going to have a policy that is in fact moral. Well, I, you know, I, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with, um, you know, accepting persecuted groups, of course, we should be doing that. I think there is a moral responsibility to do that. But part of the problem with this ban is that, um, you know, there are other people who are being persecuted too, who might not be a part of that uh, minority community, but are still in a war zone, are still um, at severe risk from the Syrian regime um, or ISIS potentially. Uh, So this, it seems like this is going further than just letting more of those people in, but saying we're going to ban an entire class of people that are also being persecuted. I mean, so even the the first uh, the 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 first attempt at the order back in January, which was, I believe, wrongly criticized by pro-immigration and pro-refugee uh, groups for privileging religious minorities. Uh, had this four-month pause in all refugees worldwide. And I think, while I think that religious minorities uh, that are facing persecution, both conventional political persecution that they might face in a place like North Korea or a place like China, as a, uh, in addition to genocide that they're facing in Syria and Iraq uh, from uh, ISIL, from the regime, uh, that privileging people being persecuted for their religion, which has been the U.S. policy for many, many years, uh, is important. But the problem is this order doesn't do that. It closes off all the doors for four months. Well, but, you know, again, they're they're trying to figure out a, a good policy. And, uh, you know, you—I mean, one of the amazing things about this was the media kept reporting this as— uh, 
uh, a Muslim ban uh, often, or at least as a ban on people from seven and then later six uh, Muslim-majority countries. Well, of course, you can't, you can't look at a list of, of Muslim countries, either by population or by, uh, you know, in total population or by a percentage of the population, and from that list pick out who the who the Muslim countries are that are affected by this ban. There, there's, you know, I, I calculate the odds. If you use the Muslim majority countries, about 47 or so, uh, then your chance of picking out the seven that were on the original list by uh, looking at that list with the names blacked out would be like 63 million to one. Whereas if you use the list of terrorist hotspots, it would be, I think, 100% um, that were this list that was prepared by the Obama administration. So, so you know, th- th- people sometimes say that we're, uh, we're going after Muslims in this case. And I know there was the rhetoric of the president early in the campaign. He did withdraw that, um, the proposal to uh, ban all Muslims during this temporary ban, uh, or people from Muslim countries, I should say. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a policy that he, he consciously and openly changed. But, of course, people in the courts pointed to that and said, well, this is what he really meant. Uh, I often wonder if you would have had the courts with the same attitude back in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt, having run for office uh, on the pledge of shrinking the size of government and cutting taxes, uh, if uh, if that had uh, if they had come, if courts had come in and said, well, you know, the president's put up all these uh, New Deal ideas out there, but we have to judge them based on his campaign rhetoric, which was uh, smaller government and lower taxes. I don't think that would be considered reasonable, and so you can't have courts go down that road of starting to uh, to judge people. People, as they did, there were many uh, comments that if Obama had proposed exactly the same uh, policy, uh, that the courts would have approved it, whereas they didn't for Donald Trump. So that's another factor, uh, another issue in this that uh, I'm very glad that the Supreme Court acted the way it did. Uh, in terms of the, you know, the, the look, we can't take people from everywhere. Uh, we have to be very selective, uh, or at least somewhat selective, in, in, uh, because there are, there are places all over the world where people are being persecuted in horrible ways um, and uh, are being subject to uh, all the ravages of war, of, of famine caused by uh, conflict. And, uh, you know, I, I want to be, be generous. I want us to be a generous and, and a welcoming com- country. But when you consider that... Uh, for example, particularly with the Syrians, uh, the lack of uh, documentation, uh, the the amount of false documentation that's out there, and how easy it is to get uh, the reports from the Syrian refugee camps. For example, uh, there was a, a USA Today piece by a uh, person who was in the camps who was uh, who was gay and uh, who lived in terror that someone he would slip and somehow someone would figure out he was gay because he said he would be killed immediately by the people that he was being uh, housed with. And uh, and you know how many people do you want to come into the country who have ideals that are contrary to those of uh, mainstream America with regard to the subjugation of women, the sexual mutilation of women, uh, the murder of homosexuals, and things like that. So that's that's an issue that we have to deal with, and I'm not sure exactly what the solution is, uh, because you would you know you would need a mind reading machine uh, to uh, to to get all these folks. Well. So, Steve, an internal report compiled by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Intelligence and Analysis Unit concluded that people from the nations affected by the travel ban pose no increased terror risk, uh, and there have been no deaths in the United States caused by extremists with family backgrounds in the banned countries. Uh, So I, I, I hear what you're saying about 
we've seen a lot of bad ideas coming from these people and these terrorist attacks in, in Europe, but we already have different immigration policies than the European Union does. So why do we need this ban when it seems like it has not been a problem in the past and Homeland Security says it won't be a problem in the present? Right. Uh, you know, and, and you're always on any kind of issue like this, you're always dealing with uh, the things that people in the general public don't know about. Uh, usually that's just an excuse. Let me let me make it clear. And I'm very critical of that. If somebody says, oh, well, I know more than you, but I've seen the intelligence reports uh, and you haven't. So therefore, uh, you should listen to me. Most of the time, it turns out the person is uh, either lying or at least uh, exaggerating his uh, degree of expertise uh, based on this uh, uh, secret information. So let me make it very clear. However, there is the aspect that, you know, there are uh, plots out there that we don't know about, plots that have been foiled that we don't know about. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I give the government, I'm not one to give the government much leeway, but I give, I give the people in the administration a little bit of leeway in terms of something like picking which countries to, to, uh, to target for something like this. Part of it is the Skittles problem. And that is we're talking about such a small number of people. Uh, who are uh, who are uh, involved in nefarious activities in the general scheme of things. There are a lot of people in the Muslim community, unfortunately, who in an abstract sense do support uh, uh, the use of force. And, and it may be 10 percent, it may be 15 percent in the Western countries. Um, there are more than that who would support, uh, for example, applying Sharia law to uh, a Muslim uh, so that someone is punished for trying to leave the religion, for example, even killed for trying to leave the religion. Uh, that seems to be a pretty substantial percentage, unfortunately. Although, again, there are people on the other side. There are many Muslims who are 100 uh, percent pro-democracy, pro-freedom. That's why they come to the to the United States, why they come to the West. That's why you see in younger generations actually a fall off in support for freedom and democracy, because they're Parents who came to America or came to Britain came for the freedom, and then the kids don't have that motivation. So, uh, but but we're, you know, if you're talking about a very very small number of people in the big scheme of things, that makes it really tough uh, because you have to, in effect, put a policy there that uh, 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 affects a lot of folks just to get that one or two or twenty one guys. Uh, and uh, usually guys, but not always. Uh, and uh, and that's, uh, that's going to cause uh, uh, unfairness. And you can say, well, what about this? I remember one of the things that people used to say was, uh, well, there's, this person is a doctor. He can't be a terrorist. That came up a lot. I, I have a collection of references in TV shows to where that would be the big reveal that, you know, this person accused of uh, terrorism coming from the Middle East uh, uh, was actually a doctor. And then people would go, well, that's not someone who could be a terrorist. And of course, many of the top terrorists uh, are uh, very well educated, including doctors. So, so figuring out who that small number of people is, that's a tough job. And fun fact, uh, not necessarily by certain definitions a terrorist, but, but the certainly evil Bashar al-Assad is himself a, <laughs> uh, a British-trained ophthalmologist. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and, his, uh, and his wife was on the cover of Vogue in 2011, wasn't she? <laughs> really? I didn't know that. <laughs> I, 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 believe, I believe it was Vogue, but don't quote me on that. Um, so, so Mike, I, I think there were some valid points raised there. So we have seen problems in terms of integration um, into the rest of society from Muslim communities in, in Europe. Again, this is not saying everyone necessarily even a majority, but certainly a, um, a troubling amount. Um, 
you know, frequently they have no desire to integrate. They form their own isolated communities where crime has become a major issue. Um, and additionally, their birth rates are much higher than the native population. We heard concerns about them supporting uh, or, or amounts of them supporting Sharia law, uh, at least as applied to the Muslim communities there. Um, and so we don't see the same appreciation from uh, certain amounts of these communities of the classical liberal ideas of a free and tolerant society that European and American society has. And in, and in time, with their birth rates, you could have a sufficient voting block to start rolling back those policies. Uh, so do you think that this is a legitimate, valid concern? And if so, what else could we do about it besides restricting immigration? I think we need to be very careful uh, when we're talking about the American refugee program and the American immigration experience as regards uh, people from the Middle East, people from Islamic countries and the current crisis migration situation in Europe. Uh, the scale of the migration into Europe makes it a, gives it a difference in kind. Uh, in Germany, since uh, the Chancellor Angela Merkel essentially opened the border for about a year, uh, over something on the order of a million people uh, came into Germany. And Germany has a population of about 80 million. Um, that is a staggering number. Uh, the That's on that scale and combine that with the already existing, already difficult to integrate uh, Turkish population in Europe, which the Turkish government uh, has encouraged uh, the uh, Turkish populations in Europe not to integrate, not to uh, vote in European elections, but to vote in Turkish elections. Combine those together and you have a large enough population that you can have national level problems. The Muslim population in the United States is, so sm is incredibly small, uh, less than 1% of the population. If you're looking at their political involvement, they are so small that the national exit poll can't get a statistically significant sample. Um, you know, and as far as their integration in the United States, it has generally been good. Uh, the Muslim populations in the United States have generally assimilated reasonably. There have been problems, uh, most recently the uh, the cases up in Michigan, but... Would you elaborate on what that is? Sure. Uh, recently, I want to say last month, uh, for the first time since a federal law against uh, female genital, genital mutilation was passed, a doctor was charged for having engaged in those procedures. Um, so, again, you know, again, there is a possibility that bad things can happen, but this is not, this does not appear to be common, uh, and it does not appear to uh, be a substantial problem with the U.S. population. Well, the FBI does have a, a, a webpage, and the FBI claims that there are 500,000 suspected cases of female genital mutilation in the United States. And people say, well, that's not necessarily a Muslim thing. And that's true. But the head covering 
that's not necessarily a Muslim thing either. In fact, it predates Islam, but it was adopted and now is associated with Islam. And there's a, a great deal of, uh, of that association now. Uh, and, uh, you know, people are right to be concerned. Uh, I, I saw a commentator on one of the uh, one of the, the political shows a few weeks ago who was actually uh, defending this and basically saying, well, this is just like uh, circumcision. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and to be honest, that's one of the problems you have when you bring cultures together, because obviously circumcision is something that's accepted in our society uh, and uh, female genital mutilation is not. And they are not the same thing. But if you wanted to analogize one to the other, I guess you could you could do that. And, and, and that's what happens when people people uh, clash. You know, I, I, I sometimes su- suggest that we think of it this way. Imagine that there was a group of people from New Zealand who were coming into the United States and thirty uh, percent of them were members of the uh, Westboro Baptist Church. That's the people who walk around with signs uh, saying "God hates fags." And uh, wouldn't what would how would people react? Would they would they say, "Well, this is religious freedom, and people should be allowed to come here," or would they be uh, would they freak out? And, and remember, I'm saying that this would be a minority, uh, just as I've said on the program before. I I've worked in many years and uh, worked for many years with Muslims in the United States who and in other countries who were 100% freedom loving. I was actually recruited to the precursor of the of the Tea Party movement by a Muslim. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I it, it is a problem though that a high percentage uh, are associated with practices and beliefs that are going to be problems if if people come into American society. Whatever minor problems uh, they may be, uh, Steve, the communication strategy of the United States previously has been to try to be seen as a friend to all peoples across the world. And regardless of where we are now in terms of this, uh, from an optics perspective, Trump's statements about Muslims during the campaign were, were not in line with that. And now on top of that, uh, you know, banning people from these specific countries makes it look like America is opposed to uh, both Muslims and nationals from those countries. Uh, won't this just engender anti-Americanism in the affected countries? And so whatever problems there may be uh, with some of this immigration, uh, if, if they become more anti-American because we're not treating them respectfully and, and taking the majority ones who will be good Americans, uh, won't that just make terrorism worse in the long run? Well, it depends on, on, on how we differentiate and how we explain ourselves. And I, I know that's a problem with the Trump administration, sometimes explaining themselves. Um, but uh, clearly a lot of people get this. Uh, the president uh, met with uh, what was it, 54 uh, countries represented uh, at the um, at the conference uh, where uh, you had uh, major uh, Muslim countries come out and, and in the leaders declare that uh, they're going to help uh, crush the, the terrorist threat. Uh, and I know Saudis were there and I get the, the problem that, you know, the Saudis have been funding terrorism going back to George Washington's time, um, partly so that they would be left alone that the ruling class would be left alone as long as they were providing that funding for uh, you know terrorists going after other folks. Um, so there are all kinds of problems involved. But the main thing is to keep clear uh, that those who will uh, either pursue what we consider the good values of freedom and democracy and respect uh, and, and equality um, and, uh, you know, or at least will live us, leave us alone and we'll have to make hard choices. You know, how many 
We can't uh, change all the countries of the world. We can't impose our values on them as much as we might uh, like to if we had that power. Um, or maybe we, we shouldn't do it even if we did have the power. But the point is we can't do it. And, uh, and so we have to take that into account. Uh, and when we're dealing with uh, the Muslim world, make it clear that there are some Muslims who are our friends and some who are our adversaries. Make it clear what the criteria are for deciding which camp you're in and line up with the Muslims who, uh, who want to, uh, who want to be the, what we consider to be the good guys, uh, the Jordanians, for example, who are the Egyptians uh, in the current regime. And again, I'm not defending anything that they do. Uh, I'm saying that you have to make hard choices. Uh, we had this lineup of all things with Stalin to beat Hitler, and it was a necessary uh, choice. Um, so we can certainly um, deal with these uh, with the various countries of the world as they're as they're uh, becoming our allies, uh, and uh, and we help them fight the threat uh, in their own countries, uh, and uh, and we stand with. Uh, uh, Zudi Jasser and those who were trying to uh, build a reform movement uh, in Islam, uh, and uh, that will that will uh, maybe get us away from the current conflict. Well, and, and I, I actually think that raises uh, many good points that I agree with. Uh, certainly, the way that the Trump administration in its early days has interacted with the historical American allies in the Middle East in the Arab world. Uh, I think is a positive change from the Obama administration's very favorable treatment of the revolutionary regime in Iran. Uh, and yeah, when we're talking about the Middle East, there are not very many good guys. Uh, there are a lot of bad, a lot of guys who are bad in a lot of ways, and we may be put in a position where we have to decide that we have to side with Saudi Arabia against ISIS even though in terms of human rights, they are a lot more similar than we would definitely want them to be. Uh, but to get back to a point we, we were discussing earlier uh, regarding the, the potential val the values that potential migrants are bringing to the United States, uh, it reminds me, you know, back in the 1800s, uh, we had much larger migrations of a religious minority with extraordinarily different views than the uh, prevailing consensus in the United States. And of course, I'm talking about Irish Catholics. Um, it was a commonly held belief that politically, uh, Catholics, especially Irish Catholics, were enthralled of the Pope. John Kennedy had to give a speech when he was running for president saying, I'm not taking orders from the Pope, even as he was sleeping with about anyone he could get the opportunity to sleep with. And, uh, and now... Uh, you know, Rom Roman Catholics are an ordinary and expected part of American society. Uh, indeed, politically, even though for a very long time they were overwhelmingly Democrat, uh, Donald Trump won Catholics, according to the exit poll. Uh, so where you lie politically or theologically or in terms of your quote-unquote values today is not necessarily where you will lie tomorrow. Uh, and I think that we underestimate uh, the power of the American culture, even uh, with the sort of politically correct desire not to assimilate. Uh, I think we underestimate the power of American uh, culture to to assimilate. Well, I think you have a point, but yeah, and and certainly that's the attitude. You know, it's like if you if you're critical of the Muslim world that. Uh, 
that you're critical of Muslims, you're critical of uh, people who are just expressing their religion, that kind of thing. That's a, that's a that's a, a commonly expressed view. I would say that I think it's different because of the time factor. I think if this were the 1700s and Catholics and Protestants are fighting wars and assassinating each other and and uh, and, and really acting in a very savage way in in, in, in many instances, uh, then you could you know if this if we were in a time machine and we started uh, saying well should we should we bring in <laughs> these warring factions into our country it would be a different judgment and 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 it may be that uh, 300 years from now uh, the Muslim world has been reformed and is not uh, but you know right now I think of the 23 countries that have the worst records on women's rights uh, I think 22 of them are Muslim majority countries or dominated by Muslims so so it it, it really is associated uh, and, and with unfortunately with uh, uh, with the Muslim community I, I look I grew up I mean I, I, if, if I if I may, yeah. if I may jump yeah. in you know when we were taking in the Irish Catholics that there was some of that I mean a lot there was a you know this is a thing that happened after the Civil War a bunch of Union Irish veterans uh, formed a paramilitary organization invaded Canada on the idea that they would hold it hostage for Irish independence <laughs> the you know, we have taken in people who have been in ethno-religious conflict and assimilated them into normal Americans. Right. And but you look at Britain, the studies in Britain indicate that the younger Muslims are worse from this perspective, or at least from my perspective, uh, than the older ones. As I mentioned, they, the older ones uh, tend to be uh, people who are either first generation and who came to Britain specifically for Western style freedom, uh, or at least that was part of the reason that they came. And uh, and it's not so much, not as much true for the younger people. That's the thing that's really scary is if you end up with younger people being worse uh, than the older people. And, uh, you know, the, the fact is that Currently in the Christian world, I know people on the left are always trying to concoct uh, you know, this idea that, uh, that, that, that Christ, there are all these Christian terrorists running out there. They'll say Timothy McVeigh, who, of course, was an agnostic. Um, they'll mention other people who are not Christian, you know, Hitler uh, and so on. Um, and then they'll try to perf- you know, have some sort of equivalence. It's just that at this historical moment, uh, the, uh, the Muslim world is the one where um, uh, where they're based on religion, based on theology, uh, there is this sort of problem, and we have to deal with it realistically. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to have you know people who are going to be killed. Uh, they're going to have terrorist acts, and then there'll be some sort of crackdown, and it'll go too far in the other direction. And uh, I think I wrote an article in 1981 trying to explain why the terrorists do what they do, and the point was that occasionally they'll do something, a blow up uh, parliament and then the government will fall or something like that in some country. But generally speaking, what they're doing is they're trying to provoke an overreaction. And it's the overreaction that makes the government unpopular. And then they eventually succeed politically because they're able to uh, to get the, everybody to hate the government based on, you know, and next time you're in line at the airport, think of, uh, think of all the price that we paid for for 9-11 and uh, and all the you know look at all our, our you know look at the federal budget over the last few years the Iraq war and all the things that happened because of 9-11 and they it, it was a blow that was much more sad to say even than those 3,000 souls that we lost that day um, we lost a lot more people in war we lost a lot of uh, our economic growth and the hope for people uh, and, uh, and 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 that's what happens I think when you perhaps in some ways overreact to what the terrorists do, and that's why they do it. All right, I think that's uh, about our show. Um, 
that was an interesting conversation. You know, knowing both of you guys' views on this issue before, I was pretty surprised by the amount of ag- agreement that we had. I think there was going to be, I thought there was going to be a lot more uh, disagreement there. I think j- just to get to the bottom line of this summary before we end, um, why don't each of you just tell me, uh, so what, you know, ideally would your immigration policy towards these regions of the world be? I apologize if that's a little on the spot, but just to really nail down what the difference is here. Well, I would say uh, we need to figure out a system, and there are psychologists, there are intelligence uh, people, uh, in people in the intelligence community who who have methods for doing this. But we've got to figure out a good way to, um, in my view, to keep out the bad guys uh, and let the good guys in. And uh, that's a little amorphous. I understand the how uh, how big a task that is uh, and how difficult that may be, but uh, at least that's got to be the goal uh, because I really worry about folks coming into this country who do not share our values, who, who will uh, uh, congregate and cause uh, problems. I don't want what's happening in Europe to happen in the United States. I know we're shielded by the oceans uh, in a way that Europe is not. And so we don't have the massive numbers right now, but look at, you know, look at the future. That's what I'm worried about. I think our ultimate disagreement is whether we see the European situation as a possibility. Uh, I don't. Uh, We are blessed in this way by geography with our oceanic moat, uh, just as we were in the Second World War, just as we were in the First World War. Uh, that we are not on the front lines of this crisis. We have the uh, the space and the depth to do what uh, what Steve just proposed to examine who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, uh, and admit admit as many of the good guys uh, as we may wish to admit. Um, again. My issue with the administration's policy here, even though, again, I believe it to be entirely uh, in within their power, uh, as does, at least to a limited extent, apparently even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, that it's it, it's not wise, it's overbroad, uh, and again, we'll see in 90 days or in 120 days when they come back with what extreme vetting means, uh, and then... You know, I could conceivably see us sitting here and saying, yeah, it was kind of no big, you know, the, ban- the, the pause was no big deal, or it could be a big deal. We don't know yet. There's a lot that, that is open-ended in, in, in all of this. All right. That's our show for this week. We'll be back next week, and we hope you'll join us. If you're not already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on social media at Capital Research Center on Facebook and YouTube, and at Capital Research on Twitter. I'm Dr. Stephen J. Allen. And I'm Michael Watson. And I'm Jake Klein. Thanks for listening.